You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Welcome to Feel Good Friday. Our guests, Shahir Mustafa and Amy Schneider, saw a need for change in how young kids who are in foster homes were being supported academically. So they began a program to advance equity in education and improve educational opportunities for children experiencing foster care. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we're learning more about a program called RISE that builds early literacy skills and more for children in foster care. Melissa, I know that you are particularly excited for this episode as much as I am because this is the season to celebrate all things that are good. I know. Absolutely. Yeah. RISE is a really exciting organization. So I'll tell you a little bit about it before we let... um, the people in charge of it tell us way more about it. (laughs) But RISE stands for Readiness, Inquiry, Scholarship, Education, and it's a program that aims to build students' early literacy skills. And they do this through culturally responsive, evidence-informed curriculum designed to meet the needs of children in foster care. And it integrates literacy learning with social and emotional skill development and a trauma-informed approach, which are all things we've talked about on our podcast. So, I know they're all excited. really important to wrapping around that literacy development. So we're very excited to talk with our new friends today. We are here with Shahir and Amy. So Shahir, I'd like to invite you to introduce yourself first. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for uh, thank you for having us. Um, yeah, so I'm Shahir Mustafa. I'm the president and CEO of Hopewell, um, and I can tell you a little bit more about our organization. Um, you know, maybe a little bit later on. And Rise is one of the programs that we're really excited about um, that you guys just touched on. Um, I've worked in the social services and child welfare space for about two decades. Um, both on the nonprofit side and um, uh, in public uh, public roles, and um, you know, it's uh, I, I was just thinking about kind of like my literacy journey a little bit, and um, you know, this is so weird, but like I remember um, a newspaper clipping from when I was two years old, and it was a, a photo of my mom reading to me, and it was in the Providence Aww. Journal. I grew up in Rhode Island. <laughs> And, so uh, cool. you know, I'm mixed race. Um, my mom is, uh, is white and, uh, a lot lighter than me. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it said, I remember the caption said, Mary Mustafa reading to her two-year-old daughter Shahir. And at the time I was like, <laughs> so I had these, you know, these mixed emotions of like, wow, I'm in the newspaper. This is so cool. And like, I would show friends and then I'd be like, and they referred to me as a little girl. So there was, um, you know, some internal, like, you know, questioning of my masculinity as a young man. So, um, anyways, um, but that I just, on a serious note though, like I think about, um, how literacy, uh, really shapes identity. Um, and from a very, from the earliest of ages, like I, you know, no matter, you know, I have many intersecting aspects, like all of us do on with my identity, but one piece that was never a question for me was like, I'm a student, I'm a learner. And, you know, I'm capable in the, in kind of the academic arena and that, that started with literacy and, and that really has been something that has been a through line in my whole life. So, um, yeah, just appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys this morning. 
Yeah. Well, it will continue today because we love to learn on this podcast. So (laughs) we're going to learn from you today. Thank you for sharing. And Amy, would you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Uh, I'm Amy Schneider. Thank you so much for having us here today. It's really exciting to get the chance to talk to you about the things that we're doing. Um, I am the Vice President of Program Impact and Strategy at Hopewell. And I've worked with kids and families for uh, just over two decades, both in schools and in nonprofits. And um, my undergraduate degree is actually in physics. I taught for a while, (laughs) and then I went back and got a master's in social work and have been in child welfare. And so part of what I'm so excited about with this work that we're doing now is that the, the child welfare system and the education system really tend to operate in silos. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They're both really big systems and it is hard to integrate them. And what that means is that kids that are experiencing foster care can sometimes fall through the cracks. And so I'm just really excited to get to bring my love of identifying and trying to solve really complex problems and innovating and thinking about data and um, also just working with kids and families and meeting their needs and what we're doing now really allows us to have this great playground to work in that brings together so many of the things that I love. And um, we're just really excited to get a chance to share that with with you and your audience today. So thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you all got to Hopewell and how Rise came to be. So I'm going to turn it to Shahir since you introduced yourself first. Um, I'm super excited to hear about how Rise came to be. So I I can't wait to hear this. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'll try to keep like the, my journey on the shorter side, but, you know, similar to Amy, I have a master's in clinical social work. Um, My, my trajectory was maybe a little bit more direct, Um, you know, right out of, uh, you know, college, uh, went to graduate school and, you know, so I've been working directly with kids and families involved in the child welfare system um, since I was, you know, in my early twenties. Um, and as I mentioned, I kind of, you know, I was a, I was a program person. So I worked, um, in a variety of different settings, residential programs in the foster care space in clinical settings, doing therapy with kids and families, um, and then moved into kind of management and leadership roles. And so I got uh, recruited at one point over to work for the department of children and families. So I was an area director there for six years. So I got to work directly in the child welfare system. And I have to say that was a very eye-opening experience for me. Um, a lot of the assumptions that I had about how that system operated, the challenges they faced, like it, it just, um, I learned a tremendous amount and I have incredible respect for the people that uh, work within that system. And simultaneously, that system is very limited in terms of its capacity to affect change. Um, it's under-resourced. I think it's um, it has an impossible mandate um, to keep kids safe while simultaneously preserving families. So there's there's just a lot of structural elements of that system that I think are fundamentally flawed. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to come in and lead a nonprofit organization that was, you know, less bureaucratic, less encumbered by, you know, these these bureaucracies and red tape, that was something that excited me. Because um, like Amy, you know, um, uh, you know, innovation is something that really inspires me, and I see it in the world around us. It's it's all around us in so many different dimensions. But when I think of child welfare, innovation is uh, woefully lacking, and so that's something that um, you know I feel very passionate about because kids and families deserve our best. They deserve that innovation to push the envelope um, to do better. Because um, in the twenty years I've been doing this work, um, 
not a lot has changed. And that's, that's really unfortunate because that that's uh, kids and families that are suffering uh, in ways that I think uh, we can do better. So um, that's kind of just my orientation uh, to this work. Um, I think it's important to start with just kind of um, this, the scope of the challenge. So, um, you know, I'll just put this out there. I don't know how many folks are familiar with the um, kind of experiences of youth in foster care, but um, unequivocally, they are the most marginalized group of young people in our nation. And the data bears this out. So um, only 3% of youth experiencing foster care will achieve a post-secondary degree. 3%. Um, 75% of males will be arrested on probation or incarcerated by the time they're 26 years old. Three out of four um, young males with any exposure to the child welfare system. Not even, I'm not talking just foster care. I'm just any contact with child welfare. What does Um, that, what does that mean? Like any, sorry to interrupt you, but like any contact with child welfare, what does that mean? So that would be just an open case with a uh, child welfare agency. So, you know, when somebody, uh, a report can be filed, a case is opened, a uh, family gets involved with child protective services. Um, the majority of, of situations uh, do not result in actual out of home placement. Mm-hmm. So only a small percent end up in foster care. So, um, you know, the outcomes that I'm talking about relate to youth experiencing foster care. But on that specific metric, it's talking just about any contact with child welfare at all wow. that is essentially a proxy for future incarceration. Um, Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, 40% of young people who exit foster care will be homeless within one year of exiting the system. Um, and you know, these, these outcomes, they start early. Um, and that's really the, you know, so we have programs that support youth when they age out of foster care, but the, the driver of rise was to say, you know, we need to do something upstream because what we're, we're, we're dealing with this kind of, um, this situation when kids are 16, 17, 18 years old, but really the challenges start much earlier than that. Right. And so what we know um, is that kids experiencing foster care bounce around a lot. They, they move through a, a lot of different placements. Um, and depending on where you are, um, it's you know, often uh, common for kids to experience anywhere from four to eight, sometimes in the, a dozen or more placement changes throughout their foster care experience. And so you know, I'm a parent of two children, and thankfully, they have a stable um, two-parent household, a multi-generational household. Um, and I, you know, I, I can't imagine what that would be like if they had to change schools or placements yeah. eight times. I mean, um, of course, they're going to fall behind academically. And what the data tells us is that for each one of those placement changes, they fall about six months behind academically. So our system, in an effort to keep kids safe, um, ultimately creates a, a, another challenge, which is an increasing academic opportunity gap. So youth experiencing foster care will now be two to four years behind academically um, just by nature of being in foster care. So we said, you know, there's got to be a better way. We, we got to do something about this. Um, so we um, partnered with um, one of our corporate partners, Liberty Mutual, um, and their corporate strategy and research team. And we basically did a national scan on best practices um, for um, high impact tutoring and um, uh, education models for this population. And we chose literacy because, you know, again, we were data informed, we're data driven. And, you know, by the end of third grade, um, you know, that's a huge milestone for literacy. And if kids are not capable of reading uh, on target uh, at grade level by the end of third grade, 
you know, they can know that they're falling further and further behind and those academic losses are compounded. So that was, that was one data point that we said, okay, we need to do something that captures this population. And um, unfortunately, there's really no models out there in the entire country for this population. Um, there's some things that are designed around basic homework help and, you know, kind of more generic support, which is, which is great and which is helpful, but nothing that's really pointed towards a competency-based framework, a skill set around literacy. Yeah, Lori so, and I talk about that all the time with just tutoring in general, that it is often just like helping get caught up on classwork or homework or, right. you know, just that that very general stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, this so, is so, yeah, this the, is so the, much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're sharing it, but it's so much to digest <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, one one key aspect to the model is that it's a home-based model. So mm-hmm. there are frameworks out there that are school-based, but because of the transient nature of the population that we support, um, we, we knew it needed to be a home-based model. So that's why we provide in-home high-impact tutoring uh, directly with uh, the young people, their foster parents, and if they're reunified home with their caregivers. Um, that's a key ingredient to this model. And then there's another piece around educational support um, because a, a disproportionate number of kids um, in foster care are placed on 504 plans, have IEPs. And as you know, that system can be daunting to navigate. And so we provide support to uh, youth and families and kind of advocating on their behalf, ensuring that their academic needs are being met in addition to providing that, that tactical um, tutoring component. Amy, you ready to jump in? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I can share a little bit about the the model itself. Yeah, that would be great. Um, so there's three important components that we really like to call out when we're talking about RISE. And the first one is that it's really important, we've learned, to have a really strong research-backed curriculum that's been custom-designed to specifically meet the unique needs of kids experiencing foster care. And so we have partnered with an amazing organization called Crafting Minds, and they have worked with us to develop structured literacy routines and a full curriculum, helped us understand what assessments we need to be using um, so that we can make sure that we are meeting the needs of kids from a literacy perspective and a social emotional perspective, and also really attending to their unique needs. So what we do is we assess each child's strengths and areas of growth. We use, as she here mentioned, a milestone-based approach that targets instruction. So we're meeting them where they're at. And this is most important because we have kids that have bounced from school to school, and they might not have been taught literacy in a way that was progressively building upon prior skills. So this allows us to really identify any gaps and address those, regardless of what's actually going on in their classroom currently. And the tutors use a structured literacy routine when they're working with kids that's based on the science of reading. And the things that we know uh, from research are important building blocks for learning to read. So they use a combination of direct explicit teaching, building on concepts over time, and diagnostic information gathering. So we always know exactly what students know and can do and what areas they can work on. And we're assessing that regularly. Uh, We also use phonemic awareness and phonics routines with the kids that give them opportunities to start out practicing letters and sounds and then words that have those letters and sounds, then phrases and sentences with those words, and then text with those sentences. 
And we're working on sentence level and passage level comprehension skills, as well as vocabulary, fluency, and writing skills. And so the kids are getting a chance to apply what they're learning, and they have the tutor right there to guide them. And then the second component that we are really um, focused on is that we know that this is not just all about academic skills. So RISE is really designed to incorporate the types of social, emotional, mental, and behavioral health supports that kids experiencing foster care so often need. We know that social emotional skills and trauma can have a huge effect on learning. And so the approach that we take is to embed opportunities to practice and develop those skills into every single literacy lesson. So our tutors plan out activities that hit on all different parts of the castle framework. So everything from self-awareness and self-management to social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. And then just on a human level, our tutors really try to get to know each kid and to personalize their time together. So they'll infuse things the kids are already interested in or excited about, whether that's dancing or basketball or arts and crafts or whatever that may be. And then the third key component is that it takes a village. So, you know, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to supporting kids. And for kids in foster care, that um, makeup of adults that are involved can get really complicated and hard to coordinate. So there's caregivers, there's district and school administrators, there's social workers, there's teachers, there's Department of Children and Family staff, there's staff from other provider agencies. And we're really trying to help uh, create a cohesive group that is an entire team of adults that can really work in concert to support a child's life. So RISE is um, really intentional about that process. And one of the things that we do that's really not common is that we are intentional about involving and supporting any caregivers who are involved in a child's life. So that might be a biological parent, a foster parent, someone else at home, a combination of a range of, of people. When kids are moving placements from home to home, we want to make sure that the next home they're going to, if that's been identified ahead of time, we're already working with that adult and caregiver to help support that transition. And the caregivers, as she here mentioned, they need support too. The child welfare system and the education system are both really complex to navigate. So our staff is constantly checking in with caregivers, explaining their child's progress. We're leaving books and activities for them to engage in reading at home. We're talking about making reading nooks. You know, we're, we're in the home environment And so we get to actually see what it looks like when the child is at home and experiencing reading in that setting. And so from sort of a occupational therapy perspective, we're able to really look at what is important in that setting. And the other big part of this is um, really supporting the amazing and important work that each child's social workers and the teachers are already doing. So keeping the open lines of communication to promote information sharing developing relationships across state agencies and schools and families, and trying to do it in a way so that the caregivers that are involved feel empowered to continue to do that after we've stopped working with them. And then the other key thing that I um, just want to make sure we share right away too is that we are working with this incredible team um, at Brandeis, the um, Heller School for Social Policy, has a Center for Youth and Communities. And we're working with a really great team there that um, has previously helped us at Hopewell develop our theory of change and some logic models. And they're now working with us as our evaluation partner. So, you know, it used to be best practice to go off, 
do your program, see how things work out in the end and bring in an external evaluator at the end. But best practice now is really involving external evaluators from the beginning so that they can help guide the process and make sure that as you're creating the measures that you're using, you're doing that effectively from the beginning. And so they've been helping us at every step along the way to make sure that we are really, um, you know, considering all the things that we need to so that we can effectively measure our Oh, I and love our impact that. is really. <laughs> I love that, Amy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, it's been really great. We talk about that a lot, um, Melissa. I don't know. Is that like improvement science? You're the expert on improvement. Yeah, science, that's exactly that's what came into science, my mind. Right? <laughs> right? You don't want to wait until the end, right? You want right. to make improvements along the way. <laughs> yeah, I just love everything that you just talked about, Amy. I think you know. I think we take for granted sometimes that, you know, we make a lot of assumptions about what students, what we think students have learned in school, what they're getting at home. And and especially with these students who are in foster care situations that you can't make any assumptions about what <laughs> what what they got in school, when, what's happening at home. You know, like you and I love that you all said, like, you're basically taking the time to learn what's happening for each student, where they are academically, where they are emotionally, where they're their whole what's happening at their home, right? And that's just amazing to be able to really see what's happening so you can meet all of those needs. That's amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, Shia talked about how, you know, we did this this landscape scan um, to figure out what was out there and what exists. And a lot of what's out there are these really, really effective, they're often referred to as high dosage tutoring or HDT. There's a lot of research done on them programs that exist in school settings and work uh, repeatedly with kids throughout the week and have a lot of contact with them and have these very rigorous models that they use. And many of these models ultimately exclude the population that we're working with because they either require kids to not be all that far behind grade level and or they stay with the school. And so when kids are moving placements and moving schools or when their gaps are so huge, <clears throat> that model might not be specifically built for them. And on the flip side, you've got these programs that are going into homes and really trying to meet kids where they're at, but they're not milestone-based and they're really just focused on what's going on in the classroom and trying to help the child coordinate to where that is. And so while those programs are all incredibly valuable, we we have found that the kindergarten to third grade Time frame is this crucial, crucial period to make sure that those gaps get filled mm-hmm. in. And if they don't, then a child doesn't have the reading that allows them to be able to do the things they need to do yeah. in the future. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask that. What um, do you, do you work with older students as well who might have missed that what they needed in the K through three grade levels? Yeah. Great question. So we don't yet, but that is our goal. So we are starting with kindergarten through third grade in the greater Boston area. And our goal is that we will eventually be across the entire state and working with a wide range of ages and potentially subjects as well. Uh, But we wanted to start somewhere, (laughs) figure out how we could do this really well, make sure that our program's working and we're getting good data and then I'll have to talk to you again when you work with the older students too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sure. I'm wondering if you have any stories of success that you all might be willing to share, some that stand out to you as something that our listeners might enjoy and 
maybe why they're successful. And I'll turn it over to you too. I don't know who would like to go first. <laughs> you can well, I, I know Amy's got a Amy's got a couple. I, I'm already thinking about our uh, superhero friends. Um, there, that might be a good one to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we really work to try to make everything fun. And a lot of times when we start working with kids, um, it's about building that relationship figuring out what gets them really excited so that they don't feel like we're just like another class at school. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've been finding is that we have a couple of kids that are really, really into superheroes. And it's been really fun to see kids who start out by saying, I can't read, I'm not a reader. And, you know, one of the things that we know about academic success is that it's not just about having the academic skills, It's also about identity and whether I believe that someone like me, however I define like me, can be successful. And so if we can help kids reframe their thinking around what is possible for themselves, then that can really shift things. And so we have a group of siblings that we're working with that started to get really excited about um, reading together. And the older one actually shared that he was going to start reading to the younger one every night mm. and that he could do it because he's a superhero reader. Oh my gosh. And it was just really, really I touching to see that. Yeah. I can't imagine what kindergarten, first, second or third grade teacher listening would not think that that was amazing. Like every teacher right now is like, that's so cool. I'm going to use that in my classroom. You're a superhero <laughs> reader. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Absolutely. We've even gotten some superhero capes to integrate into our work. <laughs> well, I'm curious about, you know, you, we brought up continuous improvement. So <laughs> my brain is there. I'm wondering if there's anything that, as you all have been implementing this program, if there are things you've learned along the way, like things that needed to change, things that made it even better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're building the ship as we sail. So we're finding um, that being really determined in the work we're doing is important, but we've got to be really flexible too. I mean, when we first started, we envisioned that this was just going to be sort of an out-of-the-box literacy program that we were going to select. We were going to research the best one and drop it in. And when we spoke to educators, we realized that Developing a curriculum of structured literacy routines that infuses social-emotional learning was super important. And actually, we interestingly found that we didn't need to bring in people that were literacy educators to then do this out-of-the-box solution, that if if we worked to develop a curriculum that was just right, which is what Crafting Minds has helped us do, then we could actually hire people who have lots of experience working with kids who are genuinely curious, who operate from a place of meeting kids where they're at, noticing what emotions they're having, responding to them in the moment. And then the literacy piece, it's not secondary, but you can't do it if you aren't attending to those other pieces. And so it actually has been really helpful because the workforce crisis is real, right? We haven't been able to grow the program as quickly as we initially planned because it's been hard to recruit staff, but this has opened up opportunities to to you know, bring in folks uh, who don't necessarily have the literacy experience. And then the other um, thing that we've learned that has just been really valuable and has just been evolving a lot in the last couple of days, in fact, Shihara and I were just having a conversation about this yesterday, 
You know, I mentioned at the beginning that the child welfare system and the education system are really siloed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's all these staff that care so much, but there aren't really good avenues for collaboration. And sometimes folks that are working in each system don't even know how to get in touch with the people in the other system. So there's some basics we can do around coordinating across these connections. And we've also um, been learning that school staff in particular, principals, literacy coaches, teachers, family engagement specialists, social workers, want to learn about how to best support kids experiencing foster care. So we just did a training with over 30 social workers from the Boston Public Schools, and it was an hour and a half, and they had such wonderful questions, and there was great conversation, and we just talked a lot about the unique needs of kids in care. And you know, these needs don't get typically covered in an explicit way during preparation programs or PD trainings. And so we're just finding there's a real opportunity here. And as we start talking to more people, more and more people are coming to us and saying, can you come talk to us about how we can actually shift things in our schools to best meet the needs of these kids? And, you know, the systems themselves are not well set up for that kind of transition. But as a private agency, we can come in and offer some supports and some consultation and some training. And our our vision is that we're going to be able to work collaboratively with the people that are making these changes to try them out and be able to figure out what are some models that can can really work big picture. So I know I don't know if maybe you were asking more specifically about the learnings about no, kids great. and their their outcomes. <laughs> I can talk about those too, but I think those are some of the the sort of high level things that we've been noticing. Yeah, she here. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, you know, what I've learned is that um, you know innovation and kind of uh, systems change requires like risk-taking. It requires courage and it requires um, a vision. Um, obviously, it requires inspiration to, to do better by our community, but it, it also, it, it requires partnership and collaboration. And I think, you know, we, we realized very early on that this was not something that we could do by ourselves. And, you know, this saying about a, it takes a village gets, you know, kind of played out, but it's so true, right? I mean, you have these systems that have, all of these people that really want to hold young people at the center. And unfortunately, kids are still slipping through the cracks. So how do we create those pathways, those channels for people to collaborate most effectively? And so Amy talked about, you know, on the, on kind of like the um, child welfare system and education system, but even just kind of like how our organizations are funded, you know, but the, the, you know, public private partnerships as a private nonprofit, um, with state contracts, you know, we, those, those contracts do not allow us to kind of innovate, right. They just allow us to kind of, you know, kind of move right towards the middle, uh, the bare minimum of what kids and families really need. And kids and families deserve more than the bare minimum. They deserve, especially young people who've experienced the, the trauma of, you know, entering the foster care system. And so, you know, uh, we've been able to partner with some incredible um, corporations, foundations, you know, institutions of higher education. Um, and none of this would have been possible if any one of us alone was trying to do this, right? It required all of us coming together. Um, obviously, we have a long way to go and a lot to learn. But I think that to me is cause for hope. Um, 
that there's there's an awakening that I think is happening around racial reckoning, around marginalized communities, um, and people seeing that like collectively we all have a role to play. So that to me is like a, a learning um, that I hold. That's so cool. I think I might have to title the episode Cause for Hope. Melissa, what do you think? <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> well, we are really just grateful that you took the time to come on today. And I think before we close out, we'd like to ask you, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know? Is there anything that you didn't mention that feels important? You know, I, I just want to kind of just go back to, you know, I'm on this mission and, you know, Amy is as well, because we've dedicated our careers to this. So we, we live this, we see this every day, but to, to so many people out there, the stories of youth experiencing foster care are just unknown. Um, it's a population that is unseen. Um, and so I hope, you know, whoever's listening to this, um, feels a little bit more educated about the experience of young people in foster care. Um, that it's, uh, it, there's an urgency to this, that we need to do better. We need to do something now. Um, they can't wait anymore. And then the other piece that I would say is like, this is a solvable problem. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, you know, we're not talking about world hunger. I mean, this is solvable. The scale of this is solvable. And in our country, with the resources that we have, there is no reason that we should be seeing the outcomes that we are seeing. Um, and I believe it will get better, but it also requires all of us engaging. Um, and it requires kind of support for this type of innovation. Um, so, you know, I'm a hopeful person by nature, but I just think, um, you know, I hope people can um, acknowledge this experience of youth in foster care and um, see that it's something that we can do something about. You know, what strikes me about what you just said is that both of those things that you mentioned, that like it's a solvable problem and that it's like a really, really important one. It, both of those like crossover for like so many big things that we talk about in this literacy space. So there's so much crossover mm -hmm. here. <laughs> and we're so glad that you took the time to come on. We, we really can't thank you enough. This has been such a hopeful conversation. So we're just grateful that you took the time to spend some time with us during this wonderful season of giving. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.